0: FG, people! Hello and welcome to episode 166 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Mauricio Magaldi and I'm joined by my co-host, Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai?
1: I am fantastic. Great to be here. So much to cover in the space. As always, let's get into
0: it. Not a second wasted. Great to have you with us. So, today's a new show, so we're going to take a look at some of the stories from the last news cycle. One is the U.K. Treasury that's going to introduce stablecoin regulations. Then MakerDAO, the members voted on a 100 million die vote for a bank. Look at that. Then we're going to talk about the missing crypto queen. The FBI added Ruja Ignatova to the top 10 most wanted people in the world. We're not alone. We're going to talk with two fantastic guests first. If you are tuning into 11FS podcast for a while, you might recognize her. We have Melissa Stringer back, CPO at Orbital. How are you doing today, Mel?
2: Hello, I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I honestly can't wait. It's such a joy.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for coming. And we have a debut with Maya Aloy. She's an account manager and head of LATEM at Republic Crypto. How are you doing today, Maya? Welcome to the show.
3: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to be here.
0: Lovely. Welcome to the show. So let's start, jump right in, into the UK Treasury that's going to introduce a stablecoin regulation in the coming weeks. The UK Treasury planning a legislation to establish a new regulatory system for stablecoin to come as early as August, as reported by Coindesk. This is a form of partnership between the Bank of England, the Payments System Regulator, PSR, the fca the financial conduct authority and other regulatory bodies this obviously uh, stablecoin has been uh, in the news since the demise of the UST. and i want to talk to you kai in 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 this scenario do you think that this is starting to become a trend across major jurisdictions to try and kind of organize the work around stablecoin. What's, what do you think is going to happen if this becomes an ongoing thing?
1: Yeah, so I think it's it's been clear that stablecoins have been top of mind uh, and of interest to policymakers, you know, over the past year. And I think many of the recent events in the market have, have really, you know, added a, an increased sense of urgency, particularly around this notion of just stablecoins are kind of, it's a catch-all term. And anyone can call anything a stablecoin, and they're just very different products. And so I think this is a, a clear uh, problem if consumers don't really understand what they're buying and what types of assets are are backing a coin, and you know what the stability mechanism is. And so I think it's it's a recognition that of all the areas of crypto policy and regulation, I think this one probably has the most agreement you know, and alignment from the industry uh, and others that like, it makes sense to have you know, more clear rules around what can be called a stablecoin and, and what assets are backing it. Now, what I think is really interesting is you have you know, policymakers in different markets that are looking at this, while the use of different fiat currencies within the backing of stablecoins is very different. And so, for example, last time I looked, 99% of stablecoins are backed by dollars. And so naturally, the, the US is very interested in how you make sure the right types of dollars and dollar collateral is behind it. But you have less than 1% of the stablecoin supply backed by euros or pounds. And so I find it really interesting you have you know, a, a forward-thinking financial regulator who's looking at this market, and you know, are they looking at it from a perspective of, there's a lot of risk on the dollar side, are they looking at it as trying to prevent, you know, similar mechanisms, you know, being claimed as being GBP stablecoins? Are they looking at it, looking to spur innovation and say, should we want GBP to come on chain in a regulated and approved way? And so that's what I'm really curious to, to see what what tone they, they take with us.
0: No, absolutely. on uh, uh, You know, at the mark here with, uh, with the dollar-based stablecoins being uh, massive. But uh, Mel, you're based in the UK. You have... Uh, UK clients as well. So what is what is the conversation around Stablecoin with uh, with the audience?
2: Well, it's interesting, because I think you can have um, different conversations with different clients and people you work with and people in the industry and people who are closer to the subject matter as well. Um, Yeah. So, I remember when um, Rishi first announced in 2020, one that he was looking at the merits of a central bank digital currency for the UK, and so now, kind of planning this regulatory system for stablecoins makes me think that he wants to put that back on the table, particularly with his, you know, candidacy to be the prime minister. And it's also super interesting that um, there wouldn't have to necessarily be a general election until 2025, um, and that sort of ties in with the original timeline for if something were to be approved, how quickly could we roll something out? Um, I think the crux of the matter is that it can tie into monetary policy. So I think a lot of um, countries around the world are wondering whether they could use a central bank digital currency to tackle inflation. And I think that that's some of the nuance around what's happening here in the UK as well. I don't think that that kind of narrative could necessarily be weaved into the election speak, but I believe that that's essentially what's happening. And if we had that in the UK, it would allow us to kind of um, decompartmentalize the monetary policy for the pound with a potential stable coin. And what would that mean for individual savings and interest rates sort of being... Yeah, d- decoupled from uh, interest rates as well. We, we want to essentially stop inflation, but we don't want to cause a recession. So it's tricky.
0: <laughs> Not a great time to be an economist uh, in the in the line of fire. Maya, um, you're more of a crypto native space, right? And you're dealing with the number of startups that are upcoming in your ecosystem how are they seeing this how are they uh what's what's the general opinion of you know how these uh, regulations especially when it comes to stable coins, will impact the work that they're building
3: yeah that's a great question um obviously for crypto native companies regulations has always been a scary scary point a scary thing to navigate and to think about but i I do believe that more regulation means more clarity and uh more clarity means more investment, more development, more adoption. So, uh, that being said, I think I, I, I love that the UK is taking this step forward, thinking about how to regulate stablecoins. Because stablecoins, not just in the US, but uh, in Latin America specifically, it is a way for people to store value instead of their own currency that sometimes is too volatile. And we we always say like oh crypto is so volatile but currencies in Latin America is way is way worse. Um, so they go through they go to stable coins to actually find some sort of stability. And uh, I, I'm I'm really curious to see what how, how UK is gonna start leading this way. Uh, I know that for United States is gonna take longer just because securities law in the SEC they just they just hold more. More things in their plate uh, before taking any step in towards regulation. They really want to be cautious on the stable coins rules and laws. But w- w- I I I do believe that this is all for the better good of the industry.
0: Yeah, more clarity means that everyone's playing kind of a level playing field. Even if you're a startup or if you're a bank, at least you know where you're touching. And and this is not obviously exclu- exclusive to the UK. The US has. Uh, A uh, consultation in place uh, actually is a bill proposed, a bipartisan bill proposed by uh, Cynthia Loomis, uh, Senator for Wyoming, and Kristen Gillibrand for New York, uh, which is called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. And interestingly enough, uh, I read the other day that um, one of them put the bill on GitHub and is asking for the GitHub community to actually comment on that. So it's kind of jumping into Web3 head on to to, kind of do that and collaboration is probably one of the things that will make these uh, regulations sound and, and, and worthy for everyone involved, both incumbents and newcomers. How do you see this playing out in terms of the collaboration aspect, Kai? Have, have you seen any of these things actually develop into a better, more well-balanced form of regulation, even if in other uh, types of use cases?
1: I would say that it feels like the the crypto industry, at least in the U.S., has been getting increasingly organized, and you know the Biden executive order ha- has really been an opportunity, and I think a, a really good approach towards engagement and discussion and debate between the public and the private sector, and so I think that's you know, very positive. You know, one other you know, trend that I think is worth you know calling out with this specific story is the conversations around. Uh, should we create a CBDC and how do we regulate stablecoins? It feels like are increasingly coming together where those used to be two very separate conversations. And I think the deeper that you know, central banks go on, on CBDC, it's, I think it's it's more productive to start with the question of you know, what should future digital fiat-backed currencies look like and then what are the different design options and what are the trade-offs and risks and benefits of, of each option rather than trying to design a CBDC from the ground up, you know, in a vacuum and then, you know, figure out what to do with stable coins without, you know, understanding that there is clearly demand for fiat backed digital currencies, at least for dollars at this point, you know, we'll see what the demand looks like for the Euro C and for, you know, other stable coins as they emerge. And there are clear use cases where there's, you know, product market fit, you know, for stable coins. And so I think there's a lot that can be learned from observing and engaging with the industry around how these digital fiat currencies are being used, how developers are looking to build on top of them, what properties, you know, make them interesting and appealing um, that should at least feed into, you know, what a CBDC might look like or what regulation might look like to be able to to mitigate some of the risks around it.
2: Yeah,
0: I think the the nuance is probably in the how more than in the what, how CBDCs are going to be implemented. Will they be permissionless like uh, stablecoins currently are? Uh, Will there be standards and taxonomy that people understand and can build on top of without having too many questions? Just for us to kind of wrap this uh, topic, Mel, when, when your client base is discussing this, are are they worried about CBDCs? Do they have any concerns? Do they anticipate using them? Or or is just another piece of the software that they're using? And regardless of what, you know, what's, what's the interpretation there? It doesn't matter as long as the problem gets solved.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty much the latter. Everyone seems to be pretty flexible and, um For our client base, certainly it's more the case that they are wanting to support their clients and the changing behaviors and attitudes and things that their clientele are wanting to do online. And there's, you know, so much opportunity in this space. So our clients are utilizing stablecoins just because they're, you know, a bit more frictionless. Um, It's easier to form different partnerships, I guess, from... Uh, a cross border point of view, it's somewhat cheaper and less cumbersome as well. So it's more of a, a practical head uh, that everyone has on. But, but I think it's interesting what's happening with different, um, you know, changes of a- attitudes. I, I do wonder about this whole, you know, should stablecoins be backed by fiat assets, like real world assets, or or if it should be backed by digital. And I know that there are, you know, people in different camps. I, I think that financial inclusion, even inclusion of real world assets is super important to build up that trust. And I know that there is this kind of concern that pervades our client base around um, the reliability of of stable coins as well so anything that can uh, improve that um, and help us to uh, you know share our knowledge about which which blockchains and which currencies we think are particularly stable etc is always good
0: love it love it so with that we can move on to the next uh, topic which kind of speaks to stable coins as well so the headline is that MakerDAO, MakerDAO, the uh, issuer of Dai, the stablecoin, uh, and also one of the uh, longest-running DAOs in the space, the members voted on a hundred million-dollar Dai vote for a bank, and issuing also uh, thirty million loan to Societe Generale, which is which is a, another another bank. So the one hundred million is a vote to Huntington Valley Bank. HVB, which is a lender in Pennsylvania, it's a bank, it's 151 years old and they carry uh, half a billion dollars in assets. And also Société Générale, which is a French bank, will be able to borrow up to 30 million in DAI as a line of credit for them to lend on their own for their own customers. So, this is what the bankless guys have coined the term the DeFi mullet. We've, we've we've talked about the DeFi mullet a few times here at the show, uh, and obviously the mullet is the business on the front, party in the back. The DeFi mullet is fintech in the front, uh, DeFi in the back. And this and this seems the role. That, and these are two out of five different projects the MakerDAO currently has. In that sense, so it seems to me that the traditional finance are starting to appreciate the fact that DeFi can be seen and used as, in practice, as an infrastructure. For the startups that you're advising across uh, the LATAM region, uh, Maya, what's the movement there? What's, what's, uh, what's the concept? Are, are, are you seeing a similar trend? Is this something that um, the DeFi, model, is, is this something that will uh, help to make DeFi come to the mainstream? How are you seeing that uh, progress?
3: I've always been very bullish on DeFi, specifically for Latin America, because we we know how difficult it is to get a loan at a bank, sometimes opening a bank account. So many people. I uh, we have states in Brazil where most, more than half percent of the population don't have a bank account. So for me, DeFi always had. Um, Special place in my heart that I do believe is just going to be, it's going to be just disrupting and groundbreaking for those regions. That being said, I love to see the traditional financial system trusting DeFi. This is a great example, and this is a great first step for us to see more uh, of these examples coming up. That the global DeFi market is expected to grow and reach over. 507 billion by 2028. So I'm sure that we'll see more cases like that because, uh, again, I think we'll trust more DeFi as we go. Uh, Obviously, this space is still uh, very new, and uh, we see so many projects that don't work or people have like awful experiences. uh, They lose their money, they come back. uh, But uh, I think I, I. A new wave of solutions in DeFi are coming for insurance protocols, KYC. I know that KYC kind of scares people in DeFi, people don't want a KYC, but some sort of decentralized KYC, even like biometrics, that you can at least control uh, the wallet and see where is this money coming from to just protect people and have like a fair, Fair game to everyone. I think this is, I think this is what I've been seeing in Latin America. And we see great projects doing this, like transfer in Brazil is a great example. They are doing an amazing job providing a stable coin back to the Brazilian real, but also working with banks with PIX, which is like, uh, uh, the government, uh, form of payment that everyone accepts PIX in Brazil. You can see this happening in Latin America. I think faster than any other regions, uh, because uh, I think they just they just see the potential of the technology in those in those countries.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, banking the unbanked is the whole purpose of DeFi. But Kai, you mentioned one thing about stablecoins, which is the stablecoins have product market fit. Absolutely. MakerDAO is one of the issuers of the, one of the most popular stablecoins, the DAI, and none of this happened by chance. Uh, there's an active business development unit within the DAO. They are reaching out to these banks. They are creating this business cases. Is this the recipe for that, and, and does this ensure that we're seeing, finally, a product market fit for DeFi? What are your thoughts around that?
1: So I guess- First, like, I think MakerDAO is a a fascinating project. Uh, I'm by no means an an expert on it, but as I've understood it, it really started with this goal of being a decentralized stablecoin. And, you know, that was its differentiation from uh, USDC and and some of the other stablecoins that were backed by fiat, you know, held in bank accounts. And to achieve that, it created this DeFi protocol where you could lock up a you know form of crypto collateral like Ether to be able to create you know the stablecoin die, and as I understand it, it has worked pretty well. Um, you know there have been times I think there were some issues in, in March you know 2020, um, but overall like it has been able to achieve you know pretty significant amount of of ETH. Um, and collateral backing it and DAI in, in circulation. And the challenge has been it's expensive because you have to lock up, you know, $150 worth of ETH to be able to borrow uh, $100 of, of DAI. And so you have to have it, you know, over collateralized. Then you have to have the protocol be able to function so that, you know, third parties can liquidate that cl- that collateral when the price drops. And so it has been a pretty interesting mechanism for, achieving some level of a stablecoin, some level of stability based upon crypto collateral, but with the trade-off being it's more expensive and there are you know, there's the potential for black swan events if the collateral drops and you can't you know, liquidate it in time. Then it feels like, from what I've seen over the past year, there's been a shift towards saying, how do you expand the types of assets that can be used to create DAI? Uh, for example, I believe USDC is now one of the assets that is technically, you know, able to be used to back DAI, and, uh, to create die, And so then that reduces the amount of collateral uh, that you need to put up if you have something that's more stable. But it introduces, you know, now there are centralized uh, actors that are, you know, in control of, of these assets that are, are backing it. And so it almost feels like there are two different things happening at the same time. One, it's like really interesting innovation around crypto collateralized, decentralized stable coins that could work globally in emerging markets. And it feels like DAI has gotten some adoption in Argentina and, and in a number of countries in LAC. And then there's like institutional DeFi of like how can banks use DeFi protocols to bring real world assets you know, into them? And I think my biggest question is, can those work together within the same project, or it it feels like it's kind of in the middle of if you're a consumer that wants a purely decentralized stablecoin, you know, how do you think about, you know, well, this die may have been created that's backed by assets that are actually assets, you held by a bank. And if that's the case, why don't I just use USDC? But it feels like they've found some product market fit on the, Uh, bank side of like institutions that want to use this protocol to be able to, you know, get access to to stable coins based on that collateral. And so that's what I I think it's a fascinating project for, for people to observe in the space and just to see the iterations. And by the way, this pivot is happening through the votes and under the direction of a DAO. And so it's not like there's like one CEO that's saying, let's go in this direction. It's token holders, maker token holders voting to go in this direction. Uh, and we'll see what happens to the demand for DAI and the ways that consumers interact with DAI. Is DAI meant to be a decentralized stablecoin that's used for payments? And so I, I don't have a clear perspective on on where it goes, but I think it's they're doing some of the most interesting work around how real world assets can be put on chain and can be used within a DeFi protocol. And I think that that is incredibly valuable to experiment and understand, you know, even if it seems to be somewhat at odds with the core ethos of, of how Dai started.
0: Absolutely. So, just to, just to wrap it up, uh, Mel, I uh, wanted to hear your thoughts around this last bit that uh, Kai commented on this being a decentralized decision. I mean, people with Maker tokens, which is the governance tokens for MakerDAO, were able to come up and vote to you know towards you know the directions of each of these projects. Would go whether they would be executed and at to you know in which terms they would be executed. So, what's your uh, general thoughts on 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 Dallas to to get to that level of presence in the operation?
2: Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the the wisdom of crowds. Um, I would imagine that the voters um, are themselves like fairly. Um, fairly knowledgeable and, and well-researched um, on all of this stuff and the impact that it may have. But I think ultimately, they're probably seeing that crypto leverage demand elsewhere is kind of waning. And so this infrastructure could help to support um, more traditional products elsewhere, but also to kind of reignite that demand. Um, I think it's a really good thing, though, for you know a peer-to-peer network to be able to correspond so frictionlessly with uh, larger institutions and uh, kind of demystifying that, um, I guess, you know, investment banking. Um, so for example, traditionally banks like Sokjen would want to resell their securities like this to each other and instead they're becoming an investor or participant in this equation, meaning that they like no longer need to go and package up stuff, sell it as bonds to other larger institutions, and so individuals within this ecosystem can have um, kind of a piece of the action. And then as a byproduct, obviously, everything is on the the blockchain and reportable. And I'm fairly sure that uh, whoever is looking at those tokens that are in the vault, they'll be able to see the nitty gritty and have, you know, to some extent signed off that they're comfortable with it. So I think it's it's a great thing.
0: Very exciting. So with that, we wrap up this section. We'll take a brief pause to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the
1: world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick
0: and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11FS.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back for the second half of the show. We're going to start off with this missing crypto queen. So FBI added Ruja Ignatova to the top 10 most wanted people in the world. Well, she's known as the missing crypto queen now uh, because this Bulgarian woman, is wanted for her alleged role in running a cryptocurrency scam known as OneCoin. Federal investigators accused the fugitive of using the scheme to defraud victims out of more than 4 billion US dollars. She has been missing since 2017 when the US officials signed an arrest warrant and investigators began closing in on her. So, this is one of those like movie things that we hear uh, and we know that uh, crypto has been plagued uh, with some of the wildest uh, scams we've ever heard of. So, I'm going to just uh, ask you, uh, Maya, if, if, you know, um, it's a lot of time to be running from uh, the police since 2017. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of things since then and I haven't, you know, kept running from the police. But $4 billion is a lot of money. Um, how how these things still happen?
3: It's uh... <laughs> Uh I think uh I think it's definitely maybe an education problem but then it always goes back to that old saying crypto not your keys not your crypto right so if you can't transfer your money from the exchange you should not be using that platform and um and uh, I'm saying this because I learned the hard way okay I I, I definitely have left money in crypto exchanges, especially after this, this bear market that we're living right now. I had some money in some exchanges that actually went bankrupt in the past two, three weeks. And, um, and, I, and I'm in the crypto space, and I felt like I've been saying this since ever, since 2017, when I actually entered the space, uh, at the same time that uh, th- this case happened uh, with this crypto exchange. But yeah, I think, uh, I think people are getting smarter Uh, uh, But I think it it, it goes back to education and goes back to uh, actually when you understand uh, that you have to own uh, hot wallet, cold wallet, hold your crypto, you actually understand the power of this technology because it it is a powerful thing and it's going to create a lot of financial independence to people. So I think we, we all should just remind ourselves to be more careful, do our research. We have internet today to actually search for things. Uh, Google, ask on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a powerful thing on crypto. Just, just do your research. It's just, is it's, it's that simple. And back to what I was saying about DeFi a little bit is like uh, all this, all this company is kind of going down and, This is one example of of them. Uh, They are more centralized. So the more actually you go to blockchain and the the centralized solutions, more you see that the the risk is actually lower if you go to DeFi. I mean, scam, uh, there are always gonna exist people trying to exploit platforms, exploit uh, projects but uh, as long as you have a, a strong foundation, you know the founders, you know, you do your research, I think you, you, you can probably try to protect yourself against these this issues.
0: Yeah, the whole, the whole thing about, you know, holding your keys to hold your money is kind of putting you in a place where you also um, become your own bank and being your own bank has its own inherent risks. So maybe we'll find within the spectrum of completely decentralization and complete decentralization somewhere where different people with different skill sets are going to uh, fall into. Um, just so we can wrap this up, Mel, um, Maya mentioned education. So what what type of education are we thinking when we talk to uh, institutional clients that are trying to start, you know, delving into this space? Because it's obviously, our individual education is our own responsibility. When you're talking about institutions, there's you know a number of different people with different profiles and different roles and responsibilities. It's not as easy to actually have them all on the same page. What are you seeing in this institutional space that you feel is being successful in actually bridging this educational gap?
2: Sure, yeah. So um, interestingly and refreshingly, I'm finding that a lot of our old... Um, And perhaps in other areas, more traditional institutions are actually providing really good um, support for this educational piece. So, you know, banks like J.P. Morgan, for example, do a great job in helping uh, other institutions, I think, to feel more comfortable. The fact that the um, government is looking into stable coins and, and digital currencies and so on, I think those sorts of high-level, newspaper-worthy narratives from reputable sources is going a long way to educate people. But I think, pragmatically, from a corporate viewpoint, having a look at what your competitors are doing, following a relatively well-trodden path is kind of like a lazy but relatively secure way of doing it, I guess. Choosing to invest your research wisely, so for example, not all stable coins are made Equal, so making sure that um, you trust the fact that it's going to be and remain pegged to a fiat currency, for example. Um, But then you're less likely, I think, to have um, institutions or corporates investing in these um, like hype currencies. I did like one thing, though, about this um, coin. I I kind of found it intriguing that... um, buyers were offered commission if they sold the currency onto more people and that kind of bleeds into the you know NFT space and programmable money and the art sales and we could go down a rabbit hole there. But I mean there were some redeeming features. So people were not idiots for buying this coin, you know?
0: Yeah. It's just a complete uh smogger's board of buzzwords in the crypto space Mm -hmm. in this particular case. So um, this is not all we're going to hear about this thing. Make sure to keep tuning in as we'll have a very exciting conversation on this very topic to share with all of you really, really soon. Kai, over to you for the next one.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest stories in July has been the announcement that Solana Labs is building a Web3 mobile phone. And so you know, this phone is gonna be called Saga. It's an Android uh, handset uh, that Solana Labs is, is creating that also includes the Solana mobile stack, uh, which is a you know, operating system or SDK for Web3 programs. The phone will cost about $1,000, be available for delivery in 2023. And it's gonna feature a, a Web3 Dapp store and you know integrated Solana Pay, um, to make payments, you know, directly, you know, from keys stored in a, a seed vault, you know, on the device. And so it's really interesting to, to see this, this step, uh, of, you know, Solana investing in, in mobile growth and, and going as far to creating their own phone. Uh, Maya, let me start with you. I'm curious your thoughts and, and reactions. Is this a good idea? Does it make sense? You know, why do people need a, a Solana phone? Do you think it, it, it will be successful?
3: Uh, I, I was actually at NFT NYC when they announced the phone and uh, I've heard so many mixed feelings from, from NFT, NFT projects, pro, uh, projects on Solana. I think the people are being positive about this news is uh, obviously is it's going to be helpful to a lot of projects, especially on the gaming side, because today, uh, as you may know, it's so hard to connect your MetaMask wallet on your phone, your phantom wallet. Like if you want to play a mobile game, uh, there's always almost no way to play a blockchain game on a mobile. This technology or this step at least can be something helpful on some applications on Solana. Uh, But on the other side, um, Solana is a complicated network because obviously it it keeps going down, people complain. Sometimes uh you do transactions and then it takes a while to the blockchain accept it. So um I do think that is an important step. I do think that in the future we're gonna see more phones that are gonna connect to crypto wallets uh to just make transactions and adoption easier. So my my feeling is positive about this about this phone. But I definitely see that uh, Solana needs to work on their network issues before even launching a phone.
1: <laughs> In Mauricio, what, what do you think? Is is this going to make crypto more you know mobile first? And is the idea that you know they will create this phone as a a reference device? I think I've seen you know because they accept USDC for pre-orders, you can track you know how many have been purchased. I think there's been about you know the last dashboard I've seen about twenty five hundred. Of these that have been pre-ordered and so do you think this is kind of a demo showing other phone manufacturers how to incorporate best-in-class web3 experiences or do you think that you know this phone may actually you know get adoption and and become uh, widely used
0: yeah i i think i agree with uh with maya i saw some very harsh remarks on twitter like before even thinking about making your phone what if your blockchain actually worked. I think that's um, a, a kind of a very gut reaction from the marketplace and given the anonymity of it. But I think if, if you think how uh, the iPhone and, and smartphones in general have creeped into our daily lives and our habits, thinking that Web3 is going to become mainstream without actually getting into the phones is really, really hard. Right. I don't think unless they invented another device that becomes ubiquitous, which I don't know w- which would be, I think it's the proper approach. And if you want anyone in the Web3 space to actually come up with the phone, you want them to be the people who, ha- who actually work in telco, which is the case of Raj and, and Tolly, Right. They come from Qualcomm and they, they've been in telco, they understand the, the, the physicality of the networks. And I think that is that is a big value to what Solana is trying to build. Um, so, I think there is some form of a um, kind of groundbreaking Pathfinder vibe to all of this. Um, I would think that maybe it wouldn't be a Solana development kit, like the SMS, the Solana uh, stack. Um, because I don't think Solana is as popular as other uh, virtual machines that we see in uh, blockchain. We know how big the uh, overall Ethereum ecosystem is and is becoming with the scalability solutions on layer twos. So I think there might be a trend for us seeing Web3 native phones uh, with specifics, but the critical mass of adoption might not come from a blockchain layer one that hasn't reached... Uh, maturity I mean Solana it's still beta uh, we're not we're not fully flash production with Solana I mean they there's always every time they reboot the validators is is the the beta version of it uh, so I I think there's a long ways to go to that but I'm I'm thinking that if there's anything that Solana can set to trend for other layer ones is that? And it might not be a case of the first mover uh, winning position but more so like oh this is possible let's think about this in other ecosystems and other technical architectures and make that possible in in ways that are critical mass and then gets adoption so i think yes mobile is proper uh, ways to go Uh, might not be in this specific ecosystem that will see this thrive
1: and htc has tried this before samsung has tried this mel what what do you think Are, are blockchain phones going to be a thing
2: Uh, Yes, I think they will. And I think this will be a great, um, I'm very positive today, I think it's the weather, Um, but I I think it will be uh, a great prototype. It's sort of like uh, UX for humanity, really, if you want to get philosophical about it, because there are so many people that are already using phones to make purchases around the world, particularly in areas that correlate most closely with crypto adoption generally. And I think it really makes sense to bring as many people along for the ride as possible and to, um, yeah, instill this like crypto native and web three uh, UX for humanity, if you like, um, by leaning into existing behaviors and not to try and change too much too soon.
1: And it's it's amazing just how much of crypto, uh, crypto use today, at least anecdotally, you know, when I talk to people, they're saying, oh, I, I only use desktop, mobile is a nightmare. Like, particularly if you look at just the, the hardware wallets today, and most of the people that are using Trezor and, and Ledger, you know, the most secure ways to use crypto tend to be doing so on a laptop with a USB you know, plugged into it. And that's something that, that does not scale to, to many markets across the world. And so, you know, being able to have better techniques for key management uh, and how they can be stored you know, inside of a, a, a key store on, on a device I think is is a great step for improving hot wallets. Um, But I'm really interested to see how does this accelerate other large manufacturers and kind of their efforts in this space.
0: So next is NFT startups are hiring full time vibe managers to lift the mood amid crypto collapse. Well, since January, the market for NFT has been locked in a downward spiral. Sales on one of the popular platforms fell to less than one-seventh of their January peak, and the buyer of the so-called Mona Lisa of the digital world, a $2.9 million NFT of Jack Dorsey's first tweet, was forced to sell it for just $6.8 thousand. To shore things up, NFT projects have turned to a new kind of role, the Vibes manager, also known at some company as the chief Vibes officer or director of Vibes. The goal? to keep things positive no matter what. As much as a proponent as I would be of um, mental health care for all employees and collaborators and, and people in general, crypto is already a, as I said, a board of buzzwords. Uh, Maya, you know, the startups you're mentoring across the region, did they hire any Vibes officer? What, what's, what's going on there?
3: yeah i think i think there's a lot of different names for this category of uh of a of job is uh it could be a, a yeah chief vibe officer uh, uh, co- a community manager it's kind of like this this vibe motivator in the community and I, I and yeah i think i think i think you should have one i think every community should have one because it's really hard to manage a DAO or to manage an NFT collection, people get bored very easily. And um, it, it, you want to engage with your community. That's the whole point of crypto and NFTs and token gated communities. You want to engage with your audience. You want to listen to them. You want to provide value somehow. If your DAO is all about art, you want to make sure that these people are getting back on the information or why they bought that DAO, why why are they in that community? So, a vibe manager—it's it, it's not just a, a, a title. I think it's actually one of the most important persons in in in, in that space, uh, in that project. Uh, and uh, I, I've had—I mean, so many DAOs and NFT collections that uh, were just about the hype. Up until the minting event, and I get so frustrated. <laughs> so, it, it, but but at the same time, I mean, so many other DAOs that have that do an amazing job of uh, asking questions as soon as you enter the DAO, making sure that they know what I like to put me in sub DAOs or sub communities inside the DAO that I will connect with people with similar interests than me, and they maybe I can go to in in real life events like in LA where I'm, where I'm at, and I can com- connect with people in real life that share the same interests as me. Uh, and this is all come from the community discord channels. And obviously you have to be engaged and, and, and these people, uh, they provide that to users. And I think that's so important. We, we all in the crypto space because of inclusion, crypto is inclusive. Uh, and uh, and you want to make sure that you are creating a good environment to everyone in your community.
0: Yeah, I I think I mean if if something needs to be managed, it it also must be measured. So, Mel, you know what what are your thoughts around this? How can you measure vibes?
2: <laughs> um, so I yeah I think you you all um, got cleaner brains than me. Um my my mind immediately went to some very like dark uh, dystopian overtones of um, you know the last few years with affiliate marketing companies hiring like you know hotties on roller skates um, to cheer up the indentured coders you know that kind of vibe um so i i'm assuming that they mean people that could help bolster good uh, good humor and um, make people feel happy and engaged and motivated um throughout their work with without um, obviously doing that. I mean, i I've worked with a lot of people who, I would say, bring excellent vibes and uh, are responsible for a really amazing um, culture. But I think the thing about culture and vibes is it has to be, community-based, to Maya's point, and it has to uh, have collective ownership. And you have to feel that you're investing your soul and your energy into it and then getting something back. And it's a bit like, you know, a savings account. You're kind of putting good vibes into the ether. And then when, you know, the thing hits the fan, you're like, oh, I can absorb some of the good vibes back because um, I I need it, because I'm having a bad day. Um, I don't know how Thin or hollow, a vibes manager would be, or if it's um, something that would resonate with with people on a on a bad day, I think it might be a bit jarring.
1: As silly as it sounds, as like the title sounds, I think community management is really really hard, and I think in the mm-hmm. crypto ecosystem and the NFT ecosystem, like a head of community is is one of the most important roles. Like like Maya said, within the the project. And I think particularly in a bear market when you know prices are down, like being able to still that's kind of the test of is there anything there of a reason why people continue to engage outside of the price and speculation? And I think the majority of, of projects on the NFT side, there isn't. And that's why you know there, there's not a lot of people there. And whether they have a vibes manager or not, like you have know, it's it's kind of a a, a ghost town. And then there are other communities that the price was never really a a big part of it and that they're getting to know each other and, and meeting friends and significant others. I just saw on Twitter this morning, someone that just got a tattoo of their favorite NFT project. And it's like, there are not that many products in the world that have the level of loyalty that someone gets a tattoo of. And I think, you know, there have been pretty intense uh, cryptocurrency communities for a while and they can tend to have this like post-traumatic growth when it's down and just memes and kind of making fun of each other but ultimately they're in it you know to make money and then you have these nft communities which some of them look more like you know the cryptocurrency communities but others look more like a a new neighborhood or, or type of a, a group affinity group that share a common interest you know, an enjoyment, you know, of something. And I think, you know, this is kind of the power of JPEGs of, you know, regardless of the market condition, there are people who buy things that they like and they they don't have any expectation that it's going to be more valuable in the future. You know, that doesn't really happen with cryptocurrencies. You don't buy a cryptocurrency just as you like to look at. There's nothing to to look at. Uh, And so I think there's some really interesting kind of new primitives around, you know, how companies and communities will be built in the future that are, you know, experiments in the NFT ecosystem
0: today. Yeah, absolutely. And tattooing your favorite digital art on your skin is kind of the ultimate non-fungibility, I guess. It's non-transferable, non-fungible. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm not one to criticize tattoos, man. <laughs> absolutely not. So, yeah, awesome. So, uh, we're jumping into Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. And we're going to shout out to the tweet of Felicity Hanna, at Felicity Hanna. She tweeted a guide to crypto for kids in the magazine section, including So What is an NFT? with a picture of a magazine from the kids section called Factology Crypto. Find out how money works in the new digital era. It features segments like Barter to Bitcoin, the history of money, who used all the energy, how to save and get rich, in 92% of Doge is digital. So, we wrote a Web3 report a couple months ago for incumbents, regulators, banks, fintechs, and apparently Factology Crypto jumped the gun and is now educating kids of all ages with magazines being distributed all across the globe. So, yeah, um, start them young. Education is one of the key things, and I think Yeah, I was really amused to see this and and happy that we're uh, actually starting to discuss even the use of uh, energy in crypto at such a young age. So yeah, (laughs) love to see that. So that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all our guests. And where can people find more about you, Melissa?
2: Thank you so much. Uh, So you can find me at uh, getorbital.com and on LinkedIn.
0: Great. Maya.
3: Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Maya Aloy with a Y uh, and LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Say hello um, if you have any questions. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mauricio, Mal, Kai, uh, for the opportunity of being here. Uh, this has been super fun.
0: Thank you. And you, Kai?
1: On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto.
0: Thank you. And as for me, you can find me at 0xMauricio on Twitter, 11FS.com and Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.